the Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane, who died in 19, I'm sorry, 1843, the young age of 29, he was once asked, what does your congregation most need from you? And he said, my personal holiness. He understood how important it was that he live his life the right way. He knew that he would be an example to others for better or worse. He knew that he would be a model to others for better or worse. And so he took the way he lived very seriously. In other words, he looked inward. He looked inward and he examined his own soul. But he also understood how vital it was to look upward. And so he famously wrote, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. J.C. Ryle, he wrote something similar around the same time. He said, do not always be pouring down over the imperfections of your own heart and dissecting your own besetting sins. Look up. Look more to your risen head in heaven and try to realize more than you do that the Lord Jesus, he not only died for you, but that he also rose again and that he is ever living at God's right hand as your priest and your advocate and your almighty friend. Before moving on to the topic of spiritual gifts, Paul has some concluding instructions here for us regarding the Lord's Supper, which call Christians to look inward, to look upward, and to look outward. I want to show you, that's what I'm seeing in this text, that he, one way to put it, is calling Christians in their partaking of the Lord's Supper, to look inward, to look upward, and to look outward, which I think are especially helpful words. I think it's what Robert Murray McShane and J.C. Ryle were saying, and it's what Paul is saying here. Those are helpful words for modern Christians who might struggle to discern how much do I think about myself, how much do I think about God, how do I think about myself, how do I think about God, and then especially... During the Lord's Supper, what should my attitude be during the Lord's Supper right before it? What should my mind be thinking about? Where should my thoughts be? And often there's confusion about that for many Christians. And so I think it's good for us to hear this approach to the Lord's Supper that Paul has. As we approach the Lord's table, we must look inward and examine our own souls. We must look upward to see our crucified yet risen Savior, and we must look outward with unselfish love for our church family, inward, and upward, and outward. Now, Paul's words here also are, they're difficult to interpret, including phrases like discerning the body and guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so as usual, we have our work cut out for us. So will you please bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, which you say is food for our soul. As we read and study and think, move our hearts to, to love you more deeply and more faithfully. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and if you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 901. Psalm 133, 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good it is when brothers dwell in unity. This is true for a church, and as a father of five boys, I can also tell you that that is true in a home. Division, which leads to jealousy or fighting or puffing up or tearing down, is not, the psalmist is right. That is not good and pleasant. That is wrong, and it's hurtful. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly fellowship than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. So in verses 17 through 26 of chapter 11, the verses just before our passage today, Paul made clear there was some ugly division in the church at Corinth. And it was showing up of all places. It was showing up at the Lord's Supper. There were economic divisions and the wealthy were looking down on and even discriminating against the poor. And so Paul responded by taking them back to the very first Lord's Supper between the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples on the night when he was betrayed. And he explained to them, to us, what communion is and how it should be done. And that takes us right into the text before us, which begins in verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let's interrogate this text with the first question being, what does it mean to take and eat the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Quickly, here's what it does not mean. It doesn't mean Christians should not take the Lord's Supper if they feel unworthy. It doesn't mean that. There is no... Am I doing something? Uh, It looks like I'm asking a ghost. I don't think anybody's back there, so. (laughs) Sound person who doesn't exist at the current time. If I'm doing something wrong, let me know. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean Christians should not take the Lord's Supper if they feel unworthy. There's not some upper level standard of holiness that is required for Christians to take communion. Christians should not abstain from the Lord's Supper if they feel unworthy. In fact, a better principle might be Christians should not take the Lord's Supper if they feel worthy. 
I have never been, nor will I ever be worthy to stand with all of you and receive the Lord's Supper. By worthy, I mean I do not have enough personal good or merit to deserve or lay claim on God's grace. That grace that I receive through the Lord's Supper and the grace that I've received that the Lord's Supper is a symbol of. I have no personal good that can claim that as something that I deserve. So in that sense, I've never been worthy to take the Lord's Supper. You haven't been either. These lines that we stand in at the end of our service before we take communion, those lines are for unworthy people. Just imagine a sign over the center aisle that says unworthy ones. And in a sense, if you don't fit in that category, then you shouldn't even be in those lines. Because we're coming forward as unworthy ones and we're coming to the worthy one. That is Jesus. And we receive by faith his forgiveness and strength as we Receive with our hands the bread and the cup, which symbolize his body and his blood given for unworthy sinners. So taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, it doesn't mean taking communion as a sinful, unworthy sinner. Well, what does it mean then? The word manner is important. Unworthy manner. So unworthy is not describing the person taking communion, but the way the person takes it, the manner in which they take it. And now think about the manner in which the Corinthians were taking communion. Paul described it just a few verses before, verses 21 and 22. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So how were they partaking? Well, they were taking the Lord's Supper selfishly and divisively and even discriminatingly. They were being unloving toward one another. They were being inconsiderate. They were eating all the food while the poor served them, and by the time the poor joined them for the concluding Lord's Supper, the rich were drunk, and there was no more food left. And so the poor went hungry, and that was an unworthy way to practice the Lord's Supper. And so Paul tells them here in verse 27, when you do that, When you eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you will be, and here's the next phrase we need to understand, guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Our second question is, what does it mean to be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord? The body and blood of the Lord. That is what the Lord's Supper is remembering and proclaiming. More specifically, his body broken and his blood shed for his people. 
to take communion in such a way that you are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord is to make light of the body and blood of Christ. It is to profane the body and blood of Jesus. It is to minimize the significance of His sacrifice and the sacrament. It is to degrade or desecrate or dishonor Christ crucified. That is very serious. Look down for a second at verse 29 and 30. How serious is it? For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. I wonder if you have a place in your theology to file verse 30. Could God do this among us? People were sick in that church. Some of them had died. And here God very plainly traces it back to this church's Lack of discernment regarding the Lord's Supper. How serious does God take His worship? There's many examples in the Bible of this. This is one of them. How seriously does God take the very heart of a worship service? The ordinance of communion. Very serious. So should we. We know how Corinth made light of worship through division and discrimination. How are we tempted? Or how are we prone to make light of worship or the Lord's Supper or in doing that, the death of Jesus Christ? Do we or others make jokes during this time? Do we or others knowingly admit non-believers to communion? Do we or others rush through it? We try to take our time. If you've been with this church for a long time over the past 10 years, you know that we take longer now than we used to. It takes us a while to all get the bread and the juice and then we come back to our seat and then we try even when we're taking the bread and the juice to to take our time. Part of the reason is that it takes a long time I've learned to chew gluten-free bread. (laughs) The bread we serve here is gluten-free for those of you who are visiting and interested. We had a lot of people who preferred that or who needed that. And it was our preference that we, as best we could, all be actually taking from the same bread. And so um, some of us took one for the team. (laughs) 
you know, but I, I have to turn my microphone off for a second as I'm chewing that bread before we get to the juice. I'm thankful for that, actually, because it gives us time to slow down. It gives us time to think. What is this bread and what does it symbolize? And what is this juice and what does it symbolize? We could make light of the Lord's Supper if we just rushed through it. Are we or others clueless about its meaning or its significance? If we are, then we might be prone to make light of something that God takes very seriously. I don't ever want to do that. I don't ever want to be guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus. I don't want to ever be in a position or put a church where I pastor in a position where we may need the discipline of God because we don't take his worship as seriously as we ought to. I don't ever want to do that, not even by accident. How do I avoid that is the question. How do I make sure that this never happens? How do I avoid taking the Lord's Supper in a wrong way, in an unworthy way? How do I avoid sinning against the body and blood of Christ? The answer is found in the next two verses. Verses 28 and 29. It is actually a two-part answer. Two parts done together. And the first is in verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That is how to avoid taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. What Paul is saying here in verse 28, before you take communion, examine yourself. Look inward. It's what you should be doing the 45 minutes or so before the Lord's Supper when you're hearing the preaching of the Word. We should be examining ourselves. And here's the second part of Paul's answer, verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, I believe that's looking upward, eats and drinks judgment on himself. How do you take the Lord's Supper then in a worthy manner? Discern yourself and discern the body, Paul is saying. I believe that is Paul's safeguard against sinning against Christ. So let's take them one at a time first. Self-examination. If you're going to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, it must be preceded by self-examination. Paul says this in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you have failed to meet the test? Paul says, examine yourselves. Here in our text regarding the Lord's Supper, he's saying to examine ourselves. The great English preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he explains it this way. Self-examination. 
The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. His description of what it looks like to examine yourself. Now, often Christians are either afraid to examine themselves, so they just don't examine themselves. They don't look inward, afraid of what they're going to find, or they move quickly from what is sort of healthy self-examination to morbid introspection, which is never advocated in God's word. In fact, there's a big difference between honest examination and morbid introspection. Biblical self-examination is considering your behavior and then dragging it into the light of the gospel. That's self-examination. It is for you as a Christian to consider your soul, to consider your sin, your thoughts, your words, your behavior, and then to drag it into the light of the gospel. Morbid introspection is just considering your behavior. And that will depress you. And that will despair you. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones. We cross the line from self-examination to introspection when, in a sense, we do nothing but examine ourselves. And when such self-examination becomes the main and chief end in your life. Preaching to yourself follows honest examination. Listening to yourself follows morbid introspection. Do you listen to yourself or do you preach to yourself? Don't listen to yourself. Believing truth and especially the gospel follows honest examination. Listening to lies follows morbid introspection. So that's why it's important. Not only to examine yourself, but to examine the gospel. Here's where Paul is going. To not only discern yourself, but to discern the body of Christ. That's the second thing that must be done. If you're going to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, yes, it should be preceded by self-examination. But it must also be preceded by discerning the body of Christ. So listen again to verses 28 and 29. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we must discern the body. This is what Paul was emphasizing in verse 24 when he quoted Jesus. Jesus said, when he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body, Jesus said. This bread, what is it pointing to? This is my body, which is for you. 
That is massive truth. Christ says, this is my body. My body. Think about what happened to his body the next day. My body is for you. I will give myself for you. And I'm leaving this token, the Lord's Supper. Do this, he then said, in remembrance of me. To remember that I gave my body for you. That is deep. Is there anything more significant for us to think about? When someone takes the Lord's Supper without thinking clearly, thinking deeply, discerning the body, they are failing to consider the magnitude of the Lord's Supper and what it is remembering and declaring, namely, the body of Christ slain for the sinner. The body of Christ slain for you. Paul is saying, as we take the bread and the cup at communion, we must discern what is taking place. We must not take this moment lightly. If so, we risk taking in an unworthy Manner, we risk profaning or dishonoring the body and blood of Christ. John Chrysostom said we are at risk of not bearing in mind as we ought the greatness of the things set before us. And we are at risk of not bearing in mind the greatness of these things set before us if we do not discern the body. So we put these two parts together, discerning ourselves and discerning the body of Christ. Paul tells the Corinthians and us to examine themselves and then also to discern the body. And he says, if you don't examine yourself and if you don't discern the body, well, then you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. You're being very, very, very foolish it's the same as verse 27. You are guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. This is very practical. I mean, this is something that most of us do week in and week out. And we know from God's word and our own experience that it is an easy thing for us to take for granted. And that we could be prone to even take it lightly. And that we could very possibly take communion even in an unworthy manner. So this is practical help as you prepare to take the Lord's Supper. I hope you're preparing right now. It's very predictable here. You know what's coming. As you prepare, examine yourself. And discern the body of Christ. Look inward. And then look upward. Think about your sin and think about Christ. Don't ignore your soul or the cross. See your soul before the cross. In other words, where all these things converge, your sinfulness and God's mercy, think about the gospel. See your sin 
and look to Christ. Thomas Chalmers, who was a leader in the Scottish church in the 19th century, he described this self-examination as starting in this really dark room. If you practice this and you, you examine yourself, you think about yourself, and you consider the way that you lived last night or yesterday or the week before, you understand when he says it's like you're in this dark room and you're just feeling yourself around and you're bumping into things and there's objects all over the room and it's dark. And it's maybe even dangerous. And so he describes how it's necessary. And this is moving from looking inward to looking upward, from examining yourself to discerning the body. That happens the moment you go to the window and you open the curtains. And you let the light of the gospel of Christ flood the room. You need to open the curtains. Some of you need to open the curtains. Yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you are not worthy of God's love. Yes, there's nothing you could ever do to deserve God's love. And yet, God loves you. And yet, God has made a way for you to be saved. And yet, God's mercies are new every morning. And yet, no matter what, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And, and yet, God has begun something good in you and He's going to see it through to completion. And on and on and on. We draw the curtains and we see the floodlight of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the good news that is found in his word that needs to flood our soul. And so we examine ourselves and we discern the body. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. This is self-examination. Search me, O God, he prays, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be, and I know you'll find him any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And then the response in Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. So now he's done that. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Those are all very frightening things to do, aren't they? Those are not easy steps. Acknowledge my sin. I did not cover my sin. I confessed my sin. And then what happened? The psalmist writes, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See your sin. And then look to Christ. Memorize Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 and just say it to yourself as you're coming forward during communion. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The stuff you dug up during self-examination. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Samuel Waldron put it this way. If we truly believe that the Lord's Supper symbolizes the Lord's death and partake of it mindful of that reality, we are worthy. Worthiness is not a matter of passing a morbid, super strict examination of our lives the previous month. It is a matter of a serious, believing understanding of what we are about to do. It is a matter of seeing the Lord's table for what it is and taking it as a believing and repentant sinner. This is what the Corinthian Christians should have done. They should have considered and judged their own sinful behavior. And if they had, Paul would not have had to. And that is essentially what he says in verses 31 and 32. Verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, in other words, if we would have examined ourselves while discerning the body of Christ, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So judge yourselves, Paul is saying to them and to us. Police yourself. Examine yourself. Discipline yourself or God will discipline you. This is true. And those of you who have been disciplined by God and know it, you've all been disciplined by God. Because he's a father who loves you. You've all been disciplined by God. For those of you who have been disciplined by God and you know it, you know how good his discipline was. And you also know that if you could go back, you would have changed your behavior before his discipline was necessary. It's the same for you kids who've been disciplined by your parents. Maybe you're old enough to see the good that comes from being disciplined and you, you see your friends maybe who aren't disciplined or you can imagine what you would be like if you weren't disciplined. Terrible. And you know that the discipline was for your good. But if you could go back and do it all over again, you'd never do what got you disciplined in the first place. You may see the fruit of the discipline, but you don't enjoy the discipline. So Paul is saying the Corinthians should be thinking like this. We should be thinking like this. Let's discipline ourselves. Let's get disciplined ourselves so that God's discipline would not be necessary. And then Paul writes this in verse 32, which is a reminder that that even in their profaning of the Lord's Supper, which is what they were doing, God meets Christians where they are, which is often in sin. He meets you where you are and he acts to change you. And that's often through discipline. Verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord. And remember how severe some of these judgments were in Corinth. And yet Paul says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. So that we may not be condemned along with the world. It was good of God to bring 
consequences, even severe. It was good of God to bring consequences to the Corinthians because it would ultimately protect them. It would ultimately preserve them. This is discipline, not punishment. The Bible speaks of God's discipline for His children and His punishment on evildoers. If you are a Christian, God does not punish you for sin. God disciplines you. There's a big difference. Punishment is punitive or retributive, whereas discipline is restorative. Discipline is concerned with reconciliation. Punishment is only concerned with justice. Discipline is after relationship. Punishment is after payment. Parents as well. We need to not confuse those with our children. Discipline's goal is restoration and reconciliation and relationship. Punishment is about payment. And teaching how justice works. We have a far more important task. Hebrews 12, 10, and 11. He, this is about God our Father in heaven. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's why no Christian prays that God would discipline them, at least not sincerely. No Christian Christian prays that God would discipline them. No Christian enjoys God's discipline, unless you're a masochist. Discipline is painful. It is not pleasant. But later, Hebrews 12 says, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay, in conclusion, there's just two more verses. They're very practical. Paul returns to the problem of the economic divisions in Corinth that were on display during the Lord's Supper. If self-examination is looking inward and discerning the body is looking upward, then this is looking outward. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then we'll read about these in the future, about the other things he writes. I will give directions when I come. A commentator, Richard Pratt, writes, Paul did not chide the poor for coming to the Lord's Supper hungry. They could not avoid it. Those of means who were hungry were to eat at home. So there would be enough food for the poor. The feast, that is the meal before the Lord's Supper, the feast was a time when the gospel could be demonstrated not only in the elements of bread and wine, but also in the loving treatment of the poor. So in communion, you've looked inward and you've looked upward and you're looking outward. Unselfish love towards your church family. So if we put this all together, to come back to what I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, if we put this all together, I think there's a very simple way to summarize these instructions that Paul gives regarding the Lord's Supper. It is these three things he mentions. As you prepare to take communion, look inward. 
as you prepare to take communion, look inward. Examine yourself. Consider your soul. Consider your sin. Consider your state. Consider your circumstances. Think about your weaknesses. Think about your worries. Think about your fear. Think about your anxiety. Self-examination. Take a realistic look inward. And then second, draw the curtains. Does draw mean open or close? Curtains. Draw means close the curtains, doesn't it? I don't mean draw the curtains. Open the curtains. Self-examination, you've looked inward, and now you look upward. Look upward. Look to Christ. Look to the gospel. What are the implications of the good news on all that you've considered about the state of your soul? Does it lead you to confess your sin? Does it lead you to seek forgiveness? Does it lead you, it should, into gratitude and thankfulness and even celebration? If you look upward. And then finally, look outward. Look to those around you. Those who call this your church home, that means that this is your church family. And these are the people, if you don't love anyone else, that you love. These are the people that you give yourself for. These are the people that you've committed yourself to. God has called us to love one another. And you've said to yourself, if there's anywhere I'm going to do that, it starts here in the church, among the household of God. And so you look and you see your brothers and your sisters and you, you should feel love in your heart. We're kind to one another. We're patient with one another. And we look to serve one another. Remember, through the Lord's Supper, Christians in fellowship with one another commune with Christ and by faith are nourished and strengthened by Him as they remember Him and as they proclaim Him as crucified and risen on their behalf. So we look inward and upward and even outward as we take the Lord's Supper together today. And we remember what Jesus said. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you are here visiting with us today you're welcome to take communion with us if you are a baptized believer 
if you have turned from your sin and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you believe the same gospel that you have heard here today, and if you are a part of a church, whether it's this or another one that preaches that same gospel, if you're a Christian, then you're welcome to take communion with us today. We have leaders up front to serve you. And we ask that you'd come forward and take the bread and the juice and then return to your seat and wait. And we'll take it together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we look now to remember, to proclaim, to commune. We're considering who we are, who we've been, what you're doing in us. We're considering what the good news of the gospel means to us, and it's filling our hearts, I'm sure, in different ways. Some of us are sad about how we've used your grace as a license to, to get away with things, how we have sinned counting on your grace. And some of us need to confess our sin to you and maybe even set our mind to confess to someone else today. Some of us are filled with thankfulness and gratitude. As we consider who we are in light of the cross and the gospel, that, that you know us and that you know everything about us and you still died for us. And that we are loved and accepted in you. And we're looking out at others that you have loved and saved and adopted into our family. Give us love for you and give us love for one another. We pray that you be glorified in this time, honored in this time, treasured in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.